0: Hey, deserved listeners, just me today. So as you know, from previous episodes, I am slowly working my way through all of your emails. I'm trying to answer everyone's email by the end of the year. That's my pre end of the year resolution is to answer every single email that people have submitted. And by the way, this is when you go to the website and click on the contact button and you know submit that form. So let's let's. Try to get through emails. All right. Patron Alex from Portland says, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast. I'm getting my PhD in economics. And as a fellow academic, I thought it might be interesting for you to let us know a little bit about what you like to conduct research on. I think many of us would be interested in of email. Well, in because I'm going to try to keep all my answers brief because I have so many emails to get to. And plus, you know, I, I don't know how how interesting I am as a person. So I probably should be more brief in my answers anyway. <laughs> but what I liked what I did conduct research on in the past was on difficult clinical moments for therapists for seasoned therapists meaning it, it was a qualitative research a phenomenological study that tried to get at the uh, the lived experience and the themes of the lived experience for seasoned therapists as they experienced a particular difficult clinical moment. And what I found was that there were these themes of emotions, of panic, of, you know, deer in headlights, anger, uh, confusion, inadequacy, wanting to hide their feelings and wanting to run away, essentially. And uh, most therapists had, you know, most of those themes as they talked about their difficult clinical moment, regardless of their theoretical orientation or, you know, various different demographic um, factors. So that's what I, you know, and I, I was really interested in that because, uh, you know, I'm a academic and a professor and a supervisor. And I often found that novice therapists, when they had difficult clinical moments, they really beat themselves up about it. And so I wanted to study seasoned therapists because I suspected that if novice therapists could understand that even seasoned therapists experience difficult clinical moments and and really difficult emotions while they're working with their clients sometimes that it would normalize for novice clients and there's a fair amount of research demonstrating that that kind of normalization can really help with novice therapist development and also with client outcomes because when novice therapists are normalized and feel supported and feel like they're on the right track then they're less stressed out and more able to help their clients which improves outcomes so There was that Um, I wanted to do research on wisdom. I feel like there's not enough um, research into what makes someone wise, because I feel like in therapy and in academia, a big part of the success, you know, when I have a professor who is wise I benefit from that professor. When I have a professor who is not wise, I do not benefit from them. When I have a therapist who is wise, I benefit from them. When I have a therapist who is not wise, I do not benefit from them. And I I feel like wisdom is this, you know, ignored concept that is central to our field in psychology and in education that we kind of glancingly talk about sometimes, but rarely do we, Research rarely do we, you know, delineate what makes some or how do you become wise, you know? Uh, So I've always wanted to do research on that. But there's other things I could say, um, but let's move on. All right. This next email is from patron Alina. She says, thank you so much for your discussion about yelling. It was so validating for me. I was yelled at by my mom throughout my childhood, and it made me feel horrible about myself. Now I'm fighting the same dynamic with my husband. My view that I can have a life without being yelled at is laughable to some. I've had a life of being called overly sensitive, hypervigilant, not living in the real world, etc. For me, yelling feels diminishing and sometimes abusive, and my nervous system is going berserk, so there's no way I'll be able to listen to anything the yeller is trying to say. End of email. Yeah, absolutely, Patron Alina. If you feel intimidated and diminished and Um, You're going into fight or flight because of the tone or someone's literally yelling and raising their voice at you. That is normal. And you're the normal one and never believe anything different. And when you push back on people who yell or have tone, it's almost universal that their first reaction is to become defensive, to say, I'm not the problem. You're the problem you're overly sensitive you're hypervigilant you're not living in the real world and it, depending on the dynamic if it's an abusive dynamic then it's part of the cycle to abuse and to justify the abuse uh, so there's that also sometimes people just have a really hard time understanding how they're coming across to other people but and even if you are hypervigilant and even if you are overly sensitive that doesn't matter you know if if i was you know for me If I, you know, I was talking to my wife and I was, if I wasn't yelling at her by any stretch of the imagination, but she felt intimidated by me and she was going into fight or flight and she told me, she's like, sometimes the way you talk to me, it makes me I I go into fight or flight. I I have adrenaline. I, you know, I freak out and I, it makes it so I can't even listen to what you're saying because of the way you're talking to me. And I, I would go, huh? Well, thanks for telling me that. I don't. I don't feel like I'm being intimidating. I don't feel like I'm being yelling at you, but I don't want you to feel like fight or flight. So let's work on that. So again, even if you're completely distorted in your perception and your body is having an irrational reaction or something that doesn't negate the need for other people to listen to you. So the fact that other people aren't listening to you, is an indication that something wrong is happening and they're just getting defensive about it and you deserve much, much better. And Alina, you deserve a life of no yelling. For me, for example, I have engineered my life very carefully to avoid abusive people and right now I can tell you I have no abusive people in my life and that's, that's an achievement, my friend. You know, like the amount of work I've had to put in my life in my, you know, personal life, professional life, to get away from abusive people, I, I've, I've been. It's a lifelong campaign, and it's, it's a campaign of, I deserve better. You know, I've, I've always known that I deserve to be treated well. I deserve to be, you know, because I'll, I'll be in one relationship where it's abusive, and then I'll go to another relationship, and it won't be abusive, and I'll have the same conversation. You know, I'll be saying the same thing, but with the abusive person, I'm terrified. And with the non-abusive person, I feel totally fine. And I've always saw that contrast and thought, I need to get rid of these abusive people in my life. Life is too short. And I've very carefully gone on a campaign to situate my life in that way so that I can have people who are close to me, but not have abusive people. And so I live a life, Alina where no one intimidates me. No one makes me feel afraid. And I'm not saying that I can't be intimidated, because I can't. If, if I were to re-engage with the abusive people from my past, even though I, I'm pretty differentiated and pretty strong and pretty assertive, they would make my heart race. Abusive people make everyone's heart race. It's not a matter of strength. It's not a matter of being sensitive. It It's a matter of... Abusive intimidating people know how to abuse and intimidate and they will get under your skin whether you like it or not. So whoever is listening out there if you have abusive people in your life, you do not deserve that you deserve better and there's a life that you could be living. If you go on a campaign, it might take a long time might take a lot of therapy, but imagine being in a in a life. Where no one abuses you. No one makes you feel afraid. No one intimidates you. No one makes you feel small. No one makes you feel diminished. Just imagine having a life like that. You can have that, but you got to work at it and you got to believe that you deserve it. All right, this next email is from patron Brenna from California. She writes In one of your episodes, you stated something about couples being entitled to pressure one another to do something such as getting married. I really started to ponder this as I never thought it was okay to pressure someone else, especially my significant other. Personally, I am in a relationship with someone that likes to keep their issues to themselves and doesn't like to talk about things. I would love it if my partner would talk to me more about his issues. Would you say I am entitled to pressure my significant other to talk about his issues more? End of email. Well, I don't know what I was talking about in the past, Brenna, But the way you put it sounds bad. I mean, if I was saying, I mean, the way you put what I said, if I said it was okay to pressure someone to get married, like, that's not okay. (laughs) You can't pressure someone to get married. Uh, So I don't know what I was saying. And I don't know if it was misinterpreted or I was just being stupid at the time. But now I think probably what I was saying, if I was in my right mind, was it's okay to. Ask for what you want. Um, It's not okay to pressure someone. It's okay to say, hey, I want to get married. In the same way that for you, Brenna, it's okay for you to say, hey, I want you to talk more. I want you to tell me about your inner life more. I want you to tell me about your issues more. I want that. It's not okay for you to pressure him, you know, to control him or um, blackmail him emotionally or something. But it is absolutely okay to ask for that. If that feels pressuring to him, well, so be it. But you can ask for whatever you want. And so uh, in this, and I think that's what I was getting at in, you know, the previous episode was it's okay to ask someone to get married. You know, you can say, hey, I want to get married. Can we get married? It's not okay to like hound someone about it and not a good idea to hound someone about it. But it's absolutely okay to to ask for things. And patron Brenna from California, I'm guessing that for you. You were raised in a way that it, you equate asking for things or asserting yourself as pressuring. I don't know that, but it, it kind of sounds like that from your email. Or right, the sixth email, not a, uh, no, patron Handi, Hande from Istanbul says, is everyone capable of falling in love? I'm a 31-year-old woman from Istanbul, and I've been struggling all my life with relationships. I have great friendships and friends and coworkers and families, but never with romantic partners. It's frustrating for me because sometimes I really like someone, but as soon as they express they like me too, it's over for me. As you can guess, I had a difficult childhood, lol. I'm in therapy for the last two years, even though my therapist has helped me with a lot of things. I don't feel any different about this issue. Now I think I have feelings for someone, and he recently said he wants an exclusive relationship with me, and I can feel myself falling into the same cycle and wanting to run. That makes me think maybe some people are not capable of falling in love. End of email. Yeah, so some people um, are aromantic, meaning that they seem to have been born or developed into someone who just doesn't have any interest or capacity to fall in love or to have romantic feelings for someone you don't sound like that because it it sounds like you you have some romantic feelings but as soon as it gets really close that's when you run so uh, you're in therapy and you've been in therapy for two years well that's good but i'm just going to take a guess and say that the issues the difficulties in your childhood that you mentioned are going to require a lot more than two years of therapy. Two years of therapy is not a lot of time. I know for some people that might be like, oh my God, two years of therapy? Oh my God, so much therapy. No. Uh, you know, Bob, as y'all know, has been in therapy for 30 years or something, and he still struggles in a massive, massive way. And and he's a therapist, and he really goes for it in therapy. You know, he does not um, underutilize therapy when he goes, right? and And so i'm going to take a guess and say that it's possible that for you you need a lot more years of therapy to truly heal or heal enough from the difficulties you went through in your childhood such that you won't feel the compulsion to run when you get close to someone that's uh, just a guess all right the next email is from patron ida from norway they write 16 years ago when i was 16 years old i experienced several medical scares within a very short period of time Afterwards, I started feeling disconnected from myself and the world, like I was looking at it through a weird lens. My feelings seemed muted or off somehow. It was truly bizarre. Objects seemed bigger or smaller than I remembered them. I had visual distortions and became light sensitive. I felt dizzy, exhausted, and panicky 24-7. No one could figure figure it out, and I was left to obsess over worst-case scenarios, eventually convincing myself I had a brain tumor. This weird state and the hopelessness it produced ended up derailing my life completely. Only quite recently did I figure out I am dealing with depersonalization-derealization disorder. I had I had never even heard about the condition before. By the way, I have a great therapist that I have been seeing for the last year. Could you talk a little bit about depersonalization-derealization on your podcast and tips for managing symptoms? End of email. Well, you describe it pretty well. And I'm sorry that you weren't assessed or given some ability to know what you were going through in the past. I'm glad you've finally found um, the information that you deserved a long time ago. But yeah, I described it pretty well. Um, And it's hard to describe it in written form. And if you've never experienced depersonalization or derealization, it is a very, very strange experience. There's, there's There's really no way to put it into words. So... Um, but yeah, you described it pretty well of, you know, perceptions being kind of weird, panicky 24 7. Everything's muted, uh, disconnected from yourself and the world. You know, it's pretty common descriptions that people will say. So I'm really sorry going through that. And yeah, depersonalization, derealization is awful. Dissociation in general is awful. I mean, it is terrible. The feeling, the you're out of control and and it's there's a, a a kind of sense of doom that people feel when they're you know dissociating often so it's it's really debilitating and I'm sorry that you're going through that that's that's pretty awful the other thing that you ask here is tips for managing symptoms well so I've treated a lot of people with dissociation and I've read a lot of the research and I've heard a lot of case studies for some people Uh, So here's what I'll tell you. For some people, it just goes away without any treatment and we don't know why for some people it comes on for no reason and it just goes away. So there's that one day you could just wake up and it could be gone and never come back. So that's a possibility that that happens sometimes, Uh, you know, it's, it's, dis, it's, not, it's different from other disorders. You know, It's not like people who have PTSD just wake up one day without PTSD. But when it comes to dissociative, like especially depersonalization, derealization, uh, there's a fair percentage of people who it just just goes away. And we don't know why. We don't know why it started. We don't know why it went away. Other people can get treatment for their traumas. And it sounds like you were traumatized quite a bit 16 years ago, your medical uh, scares. And when you heal from those traumas, your brain no longer needs to go and needs to dissociate. Um, So there's that, or maybe even early childhood uh, traumas as well, healing from that. Um, Other people can manage it, meaning that you learn how to, you learn what triggers it. And sometimes it's like PTSD related and sometimes it's just stimulus related. Like some people will find that if they don't ground themselves every day and throughout the day that they're more susceptible to depersonalization, derealization. So there's ways of that. And obviously if it's PTSD related, then it's avoiding any kind of trauma triggers. Like, I don't know, dangerous things, feels things that make you feel anxious, that kind of stuff. Um, But then there's other people where we do everything we can and it never goes away. And I don't want to demoralize you, Ida, but some people, we do everything we can possibly do, and the client does everything that's asked of them, and they try hard, and they believe, and they do all the things, and it never goes away, or it just kind of comes and goes, and so that's a possibility too, and it's that's really rough, and, and I'm and I hope that that's not the case for you, and I, I would I would like to think that for most people there is relief. And like I said, for a pretty sizable people, it just magically goes away. So, you know, I wouldn't give up hope, but I also wouldn't necessarily um, depend on it going away or at the very least that it 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 might take a while for it to go away. And because I've worked with a lot of people with this kind of thing, and it, it can be really tenacious for some people. But like I said, there can be relief for for some and sometimes there's even some meds to help with anxiety that can reduce the likelihood of, of dissociation. So, you know, keep at it, keep believing, keep trying. And you know, you're, you're worth all that effort. All right. the next email from anonymous patron. She says, could you please look into self-help programs out there? Like our com? Me and my partner have a great relationship and even have discussed getting married in the future. But during the, the two years we've been together, we've struggled with issues of trust and privacy invasion and snooping. We are not ready to commit to full blown couples counseling yet, but thought giving this self-help course a try could help us. End of email. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what I'd say is if you have couples issues, uh, the best thing to do is find a competent couples therapist. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't, you're saying you're not ready to commit to full-blown couples counseling. Well, you never have to commit to couples counseling at all. You could go to one session and go like, "Well, I don't like that therapist," and jump ship. You know, so there's no commitment other than like one session at a time. So there's that. It might be kind of hard to find the right one, of course. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll give a plug for that. But can some of these? And I don't know the one. I don't know anything about the one that you um described, but I do know that. Some of these um, courses that these retreats or online courses for couples, you know, they can be helpful. You know, usually they're pretty straightforward. It's like, okay, sit down, write out your values, write out what you like about your partner, write out what you'd like to change about your partner. Take the time to really listen to your partner, um, you know, spend time complimenting each other. You know, it's, it's usually pretty obvious and but, you know, good, you know stuff you probably already know honestly but the course can formalize and motivate the two of you to do things that would enhance your relationship but when it comes to trust and privacy invasion and you know your the issue you're talking about is like i don't know if it's you or uh, your partner but one or both of you is violating trust invading someone's privacy and snooping i don't know if a online course would address that specifically right because these courses are pretty general and again that lends itself to an actual therapist that could tailor the treatment to you all right this next email is from uh, anonymous annual patron she says my husband is a real estate agent he was working with a couple who were going through a divorce and they were selling their house my husband found that the man was very controlling jealous and a complete quote unquote ass hat to his wife. For example, when my husband went over there to get the keys and put up a sign in the yard, he needed paperwork signed, but the man was not yet home, but the but the wife was, my husband found the soon to be ex wife in the backyard by the pool to get the signature he needed. The man came home, the man the husband came home and saw the strange truck in the driveway and went into the house very angry. He found them in the backyard and was red-faced, angry, but didn't say anything. Later, he texted my husband and instructed him angrily to never come to the house unless he is home. It was obvious that he was jealous. After their house was sold and the and the closing completed, my husband reached out to their pastor to dis, to to discuss his concerns about this man, but the pastor never called back. Less than a month later, the husband killed his wife and then killed himself. It was horrifying and a tragic event in our small town. My husband is now trying to figure out what else he could have done to to help prevent this. He saw the warning signs. Any thoughts or advice from you would be helpful. End of email. Well, first off, this is a horrible, horrible tragedy and a rare one. Not rare enough, of course. And I'm sorry that you and your family have gone through this. You were close. You know, you. You were close enough, your husband was close enough to the situation that, you know, that can be traumatic to go through for your husband and you and your whole town. So, you know, take care of yourself in, in that situation. But the the theme that I'm hearing is your husband's like, I saw the signs, I you know, I did a little bit of thing, and you know, I called the pastor, the pastor didn't call me back, and and I just moved on with my life, and then he killed the husband killed her and killed himself. What could I have done to have stopped this? And the, the, this very short answer is it's not your fault. It's not your husband's fault because what could he have done, right? You can't call the police. The police aren't going to do anything. You could have called the pastor and banged on his door and said, you, you got to do something. Would that have changed anything? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know, obviously, but it, it's possible that it, it wouldn't have done anything. It might have even put you and your husband in danger if you had alerted the husband that you were trying to do something about it. You know, I don't know that either. Does this mean you do nothing and we should do nothing? No, but there's not really a system in place. You could have gone to the wife and, you know, sent her a letter or maybe you went over as a woman so it wouldn't threaten the ex-husband or something and just been like, hey, you know, my husband said some things and I, I'm just worried, you know, do you need some support? Would Would you like to maybe talk to an abuse, you know, a domestic violence advocate? Do you need funds to pay for a lawyer or is there anything I can do to help? You know, you could have done that maybe, but would that have would that have stopped it from happening? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I, these sorts of things are have the there's no because what are we supposed to do right what are, let's say that you go to some authority and you're like there's some signs here that there's an abusive relationship and we know that there's a risk of murders in, in these situations because there are well do are, do we want to live in a society where the police just roll up on his house prior to him committing a crime prior to anyone reporting a crime and they impose sanctions on him just because someone is worried that a crime might occur. You know, it, it's just a very difficult dilemma to be in, but of course we don't want to do nothing. The best thing that could have happened that you had potentially a tiny, tiny ability to influence is if the wife talked with a professional who understood domestic violence and They worked with her and would eventually come to the conclusion, because there were probably a lot of other signs that you aren't aware of, of the threat. People who murder their spouses like this, they usually give many, many signals, signals pre-signals of the event. So the domestic violence professional, if the wife were to be working with someone like that, They would have been able to detect that and would have been able to say, look, we got to get you to a safe house because, you know, it's not likely that your husband's going to kill you, but it's possible. So we've got to get you to a safe house. And then the safe houses are obviously, you know, you can't get in there. It's hard to even find them. And that would have been the best case scenario. But would that have solved it? You know, it's hard to know because eventually she's going to come out of there and. Maybe he would have killed her later on. It, there's not a there's not necessarily an inevitability to this, but it's just hard to do anything now. Maybe in that scenario, she talks to the DV people, and there have been some assaults that have happened already because there probably were. And then the DV people help her to file the charges to get him into a treatment program. You know that that would have been maybe the best case scenario, but you know it's it's real. It, if you were my friends and you were to tell me, or if this was me, and this sort of stuff happens. Uh, it hasn't happened to me, but it happened to a therapist. I mean, imagine being a therapist. I, a colleague of mine had a client that did this. She was the family therapist, my colleague, and the husband killed the daughter, the wife, and himself. In between sessions, you know what I mean? So, And um, the therapist and I, concluded very quickly that it was not the therapist's fault. That, yeah, there were signs, but how are you supposed to know? I mean, murder is such a rare event. It's it, The news would like you to believe it's extremely common, but it's extremely rare. You know, abusive relationships are common, but murder within an abusive relationship, it's more likely. You know, if, you, if you're in an abusive relationship, it raises the likelihood of murder. But... Still, murder is extremely rare. So how could you have known uh, that this was going to happen? And, and it, it, this is the same thing with the Gabby Petito thing, the Brian Laundry thing. When people look at the 911 uh, video, the, the police video, and they know what happens to Gabby Petito. She, if you don't know, it's a famous case. This woman was murdered and the, the boyfriend killed himself later. It looks inevitable. It looks like, oh, that all the signs were there. And I'm like, no, they weren't. Everyone, you know, the vast, vast majority of people who give those signs, no one ever gets murdered. <laughs> you know, there might be a continuation of violence, but murder within abusive relationships is rare. Um, it happens, and we should be alerted to it, and we should do what we can, especially as clinicians, to reduce the risk of that. But there's a, there's a natural... Um, Conclusion or assumption that you can make in a situation like this. It's like, because you even say this, it's like, you know, my husband saw the warning signs and he tried to do something, but he could have done more. And it's like, how could you have known that this was going to happen? It just, it, it's such a rare event. And he, the husband did something horrible and evil. He killed his wife and he killed himself because He was jealous because he couldn't stand her being with other people or whatever. Something something deep and evil was in him. And it's his fault. It's not your fault. It's not your husband's fault. All right, let's take a break and get back more emails.
1: Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month. And it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today.
0: All right, we're back from the break. I thought I'd do an OPP, an old patron praise for those patrons who became patrons in June of 2019 and have stayed patrons. We got Courtney and Adrian from God Knows Where. We have Louis from BR. What's BR Country Code? BR Country Code is Brazil, obviously. (laughs) Uh, We got Jan or Jan from God Knows Where. We have Tin from Brooklyn, New York. We have Nazem from Great Britain. We have Richard from God Knows Where, Thomas from London, Ben from God knows where Alicia from God knows where Lorelai from Manor, Texas and Katrin or Katrin from uh, Germany. Thank you so much for becoming a patron back in June of 2019 and staying patrons through thick and thin ever since. All right, let's go into another email. All right. This next email is from patron Aries from Hong Kong. He says, how do I let my friend realize that she has a mental illness and get her to go to a therapist? It's hard since she doesn't really think that she has any problems. End of email. Yeah, I get this question a lot where people are like, I have a friend. I can, I'm, I'm worried about them, and I've been trying to convince them to see a therapist, and they just refuse. And my very sh- the shortest answer I would give to this is it's nearly impossible to get someone to go to therapy. I've tried myself. I'm a therapist. I would like to think that I could become very convincing. And I'm pretty, I don't know, I'm pretty assertive with people. So you would like to think that I, if anyone, could convince someone, especially someone very close to me, to go to therapy. And I've tried. I've tried to get people very close to me to go to therapy. And they will not. They, you know, they, I'll i get them almost there. Or they'll go to one or two sessions, and then they'll bag out and never go back. Going to therapy is something that just comes from within. It, it's just one of those things that if someone either wants to do it or they don't and you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So you can do everything you can. You can be like, Hey, therapy might help. Or, Hey, you know, I went to therapy or, Hey, you know, that issue that you're suffering from, I, I really think therapy might help with that, you know, you can do that within reason. You don't want to be an a-hole about it, but certainly you can try and I care about you. And I, I, I feel like maybe if you went to a therapist that knew things, it might be able to, and you know, Therapy is fun and good and just try it out, see how it goes. That kind of thing. But I wouldn't hold your breath because in my experience, it's really hard to convince someone to go. Because the thing is, is you might be able to convince them to go once, but to to really make therapy work, you gotta you gotta go for a long time and you gotta meaningfully participate. You gotta you gotta want it, right? And it's really hard to now, one of the best things I think you can do to convince someone is to go to therapy yourself and talk about therapy yourself. Just be like, oh, my God, I was talking to my therapist the other day, and this happened, and lead by example, you know, or make him listen to this podcast. I don't know. All right, this next email is from Patron Arnett from New York. They write, Are new therapists taught about the ethical concerns regarding medical records? I ask because I was lurking in the subreddit r psychotherapy." and I read a post about a therapist who took their child to the dentist. The provider asked the parent about a PTSD diagnosis and about a specific injury related to sexual assault. For me personally, I am horrified by this because I did not realize there is a permanent record of all my current and future providers that all my current and future providers have access to. Partly this feels like a socioeconomic, socioeconomic class issue. What are your thoughts? End of email. Yeah, so essentially what patron arnett from new york is saying is that they uh, found a post by someone saying that they went to the dentist and the dentist pulled up the medical records you know because that's what you do as a medical provider and the dentist had access not only to the patient's diagnosis of ptsd but also to specific um, sexual injuries that the patient essentially i think what happened was someone went to therapy disclosed they had been sexually abused the therapist wrote in the record what had happened and then it became a part of the the client's record and then when the client went to the dentist then the dentist pulled up the client records and found this diagnosis and then the specifics around the abuse that the that the person disclosed to the therapist okay so you ask are new therapists taught about ethical concerns regarding medical records and the answer is yes all clinicians have to take courses on ethics and medical records are a part of that are they sufficiently trained? No. Uh, I spent when when I taught case consultation and when I supervise people, I just spend a considerable amount of time training people on the reality of how you keep medical records and what you're supposed to include. Uh, novice therapists, in general, but I've seen seasoned therapists do this too, will put way too much detail in the client record. Just for this reason, you should avoid that, right? Like, say a client comes to me and they tell me that they were sexually abused. In the record, I would say we talked about their traumatic history. I would not say we talked about their sexual abuse history. And I definitely wouldn't say they disclosed to me that their father did you know X, Y, and Z to them. I definitely would not put that in the permanent client record because of this reason that if the client... If this record is ever pulled, then that's a detail that I would guess that the client would not want displayed for other people to read. Whereas if I just said we discussed their traumatic history that you know sufficiently describes it, but obfuscates it enough such that or obscures it enough such that the anyone reading it wouldn't wouldn't know any details. Um, so. What they always tell you is whenever you're writing your client notes, always think about a lawyer watching over one shoulder and the client watching over another. And you should always assume that the client does not want specific details in the record. Now, is it unethical to include those details? Not necessarily. It's just a courtesy that knowing or caring therapists will Use to protect their, you know, clients from having details exposed. The other thing is, is that my client records, for example, are not accessible to their dentists. So I don't know how the dentist got a hold of a psychotherapy record. Um, maybe it was a psychiatry record. You know, I I don't I don't know. Or they all work in, in the same consortium. So I will say that it's a bit unusual for a dentist to have access. To you know, a therapeutic um, note, but it's not unheard of, um, especially if, you know, they are conferring together. But, but yeah, um, you also say that you think it's a socioeconomic class issue. I don't know what you mean by that. But yeah, it's, um, I have found that for people who are lower socioeconomic class, that therapists do not take as much precautions with those this is just anecdotal of course but in my experience therapists don't take as many precautions with those records and those records tend to be with the state you know if it's DCFS or DCYF or whatever you know medical coupons welfare this kind of thing that the records tend to be treated with a lot of um, relaxed uh, policies meaning that a lot of people have access to it. It's not illegal, right, for people to have access to it. But um, whereas if you're richer, you can afford uh, private practice therapists that their records are kind of isolated. So it probably is a class issue on some level. Yeah, but that's my thought on that. All right, this next email is from Anna from the Czech Republic. She says, my ex-boyfriend grew up with an alcoholic mother and an aggressive grandfather how does childhood with an alcoholic parent impact relationships in adulthood thank you so much for your work my ex and I both love your podcast and thanks to you he started therapy end of email well that's great I'm glad that uh, he started therapy and I'm I'm you know he deserves it he grew up with an alcoholic mother an aggressive grandfather he probably has a lot of therapy ahead of him so your question Anna is how does childhood with an alcoholic parent impact relationships in adulthood well there, I could go on and on about this because there's so many different effects that it, that could have. But generally speaking, as a child, when you're experiencing a, an alcoholic parent, often what you're experiencing is you're witnessing your parent need help. You're not being attuned to. There might be chaos. There might be a lot of broken promises. Your parent might seem like they're a child in some ways that you need to parent. Um, you know so those are the kind of com- you know common experiences as a child. It's not universal, but those are common. So when you experience that, it, you have to grow up fast. you feel like you don't matter in the world because your parent isn't paying attention to you. You have a hard time trusting others because the alcoholic parent often will break a lot of promises and will let you down often. You know, we'll say, I'll be there, and then they just don't show up. And these experiences can create schemas that say that you can't depend on others, that you don't matter, and various other things that can, you know, absolutely affect your relationships. And listen to my deep dives on schemas for that. All right, this next email is from Patron M from London. They write Do avoidant people get along especially well with unreliable people? End of question. Do avoidant attached people get along especially well with unreliable people? No, I wouldn't say that's my experience, and it doesn't bear out in my model of humans. Um, Might people who are insecurely attached, um, you know, who have insecure attachment styles, tolerate bad behavior from unreliable people more often? Yeah, I could see that happening. But you know, I could see a secure person getting along well with an unreliable person because they just really value that friendship. You know, I've had unreliable friends, but I take the good with the bad, I guess. So, uh, unreliableness—I I, don't—at least on the surface, when I think about that, I, I don't know if there's a, a a trend there regarding attachment security. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, is mirror checking generally related to OCD? I'm wondering if having a compulsion to look at yourself in the mirror is related to OCD or body dysmorphia, and if the two are linked. I'm a bit ashamed of it, and people sometimes point it out that I look in the mirror often. They seem to think it's related to vanity, but it's just something I need to do. I'm fine with how I look in general, but I just have this need to check to see if I'm the same. LOL, it sounds ridiculous, but I can't not do it. This is kinda gross, but I also frequently pick at my skin and search for blemishes or make them way worse than they would have been otherwise. I'm not super bothered by it, but I wonder if it could be linked to a more global condition for me. End of email. Yeah, well, I don't know about you. It's hard to know from your description, but it does sound compulsive. And mirror checking absolutely can be related to OCD, meaning that someone's OCD couldn't manifest in mirror checking. So there's that. And you also mentioned body dysmorphia and mirror checking absolutely can be involved in body dysmorphia. But it can kind of go both ways, um, similar to eating disorders that for some people they they mirror check compulsively because of body dysmorphia and or eating disorders. And other people will avoid mirrors because of body dysmorphia and eating disorders. So the issue is they, you know, there's some complex around the self and how they look. And some people will compulsively look at the mirror. Some people avoid it. Um, And sometimes it is related to quote unquote vanity, meaning that uh, and uh, mirror checking is actually something that I've observed a lot in clients and, and others. And, I've given it a lot of thought. And I think that it, can, it can be a sign of a lot of different things. For example, it could be a sign of histrionic. Listen to all my deep dives on that. It could be a sign of narcissism, obviously. It could be a sign of of vanity, of look how good I look. It could be a sign of immaturity. You know, when you are children, when you're immature, you're really focused on the self. And it's fun To look at yourself, it's interesting to look at yourself, and you might be really concerned with the self over others. And so, when there's like you're at a restaurant and there's a mirror behind your friend, you might frequently be looking yourself in the mirror or reflection in the window and that sort of thing. And so, that can be a a maturity issue to some extent. Not like there's something wrong with you, but that there's a some healing that needs to be done. And you kind of mentioned something. uh, I mean, not necessarily along those lines, but you say something kind of interesting. You're you're just like, I have to check to see if I'm still the same. So that's interesting. I would explore more of that because I'm I'm guessing that underneath that is the foundation for why you mirror check. I need, I just have this need, this compulsive need to check to see if I'm still the same, Uh, you know? So what's the fear there that, that you're changing or that, you're not there you know cuz i could see someone having a difficult concept of self and by mirror checking it's like okay it's sort of grounding it okay exactly. i'm still here i'm still me I'm, i still look the same i'm still this person you know that could be that that reason so you know there's a lot of different possible reasons um and i would just continue to explore that if you're interested but it sounds more like you're just more concerned about how it looks to other people. Like, you're okay with it. And if you're okay with it, then, you know, it's fine. Anonymous patron writes in and says, I have an avoidant attachment style. I am terrified of truly getting close to anybody. I have deep attachment wounds for my mom. Deep down, I crave closeness with others, and my attachment style, but my attachment t- style tends to drive people far away from me. Can avoidant attachment style be addressed? End of email. Absolutely. Avoiding attachment style responds well generally to attachment oriented therapy, meaning that you have a two pronged approach. One is that you become aware of your impulses and challenge your assumptions. Like when you get close to someone and it feels scary and you have this impulse to run, you want to question that as to whether or not it's helpful to you and your needs. So it's a cognitive uh, awareness of what's happening and exerting some control over your negative impulses. The other thing is to heal, is to have corrective experiences. And the corrective experience for avoidant attachment is vulnerability in the face of care. So as you become more vulnerable, often in therapy, and someone cares about you, that is the corrective experience for avoidant attachment. All right, this next email is from Patron Rose. She says, what relation does physiology have to our strongest memory? Physiology, or was that a typo? Was psychology? I've always heard that our strongest memories are tied to different smells. As a music major and lifelong music enthusiast, I feel like I have much stronger memories that come flooding back when I hear different songs or even just different notes. For example, the elevator ding that's a C sharp could be the start to a specific hymn we memorized at school 20 years ago anyway is there anything to prove that smell is just the most common memory retriever and that some of us are more likely to remember by sounds or other senses end of email yeah so this isn't really my area but i know enough to say that people vary uh, on this issue the thinking is that we evolved to remember smells very clearly because in the in our evolution it's probable that smells had a great deal to do with our survival in that certain smells usually well what do i say so there's a lot of different reasons why animals use their noses one is to detect food another is to detect things that are bad for us you know things that will hurt us like um you know, like rotting bodies. You know, there's a, the reason why we're disgusted by the smell of a rotting body or by festering things is because we evolved to be repulsed by that because those things are associated with disease and other kinds of things that might hurt us. And, you know, we evolved to be very attracted to like uh cooking food for example you know food that's cooking over a fire smells very good to us well we evolved that way because it helped us to be attracted to stuff like that we also use our noses to detect enemies and to smell water or to smell um, other kinds of danger things or things that are good for us and so um the idea goes is that um to encode memories associated with smells is very helpful for us because it helps us to survive. If something bad happens to us and there's a smell involved, it might help to lock in that smell so that when we smell it again in the future, we know that danger is near. This is why trauma can often be very smell related. People will talk about, they'll smell a, an aftershave or a, you know, someone's, cigarette breath or something and it instantly transports them back to being assaulted or something like that so that's that's the thinking but to say that no human can be more oriented towards sound as a memory retriever is silly of course you know there's there's a good reason why we would also evolve this memory access to sound And if people are very, especially if your life is oriented, you know, me and Umberto, for example, our lives are very oriented towards music and sound and, and for Berto particularly, he can't help to when you say something to him that reminds him of a song, he will immediately sing that song. He just, he, there's so many phrases that remind him of music and he just starts singing music. And so, and I'm, you know, I'm not as, bad as him but I'm I'm in that direction so um, yeah obviously for some people it's they're more sound related alright next email patron Nader from Peru wrote in and said you said before that we'd be better off as humans if we were taught useful psychology at school what do you think are the main areas of psychology that we should be taught I'm thinking about attachment theory behavioral science and mindfulness end of email yeah, attachment theory would be, and in all of its manifestations that we get into in this podcast, I think would be number one. There's so many things that stem from that. And not only their own relationships, but also future parenting for them. You know, when they become parents, that they understand attachment well, that we could really turn our society around in a lot of different ways. Improving various outcomes, lowered crime, increased scholastics, uh, lower political conspiracy theory adherence, um, all sorts of things could be you know lower abuse, obviously lower um, domestic violence, lower um, you know all sorts of things. Anyway, (laughs) it's a little little late. It's ten thirty at night. My brain isn't working quite well, but but yeah, attachment theory and all of its implications would, I think, do wonders for our society. You know, if, if we, I'm just trying to think like to the level, well, let's just shoot for the moon. Let's say every grade from kindergarten to 12, one of your classes is entirely on psychology and a good portion of like a quarter of all the classes and assignments are concerned with attachment theory. I think that um, that would go a long way to improving a lot of things in our society. Other things, you know, you mentioned behavioral science. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that would be helpful. I mean, really, anything would be great. Mindfulness, yeah, sure, depending. Uh, that wouldn't be my first thing to, to go. I mean, definitely relaxation and, and emotional regulation. Uh, it's probably the, the better kind of umbrella that mindfulness would be under, which is emotional regulation, emotional awareness and regulation. The other thing I think would be schemas and personality disorders, understanding your distortions and where they come from, I think would also be helpful. All right. Patron Ines wrote in and said, I've heard you talk about the shortcomings of our education system, and I know you've expressed multiple times that our education system was designed to produce produce good, obedient workers, but not necessarily functional people. A school district in Utah tried to add lessons and resources about emotional health to its curriculum, but, of course, some parents got their panties in a bunch about it. Some countries do a much better job in educating their youth than we do, while, of course, some do it worse. Could you talk more about this? End of email. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what what else I could say other than some districts and schools and teachers are doing a wonderful job and implementing some really great programs. I, I still, whenever people say, you know, but my school is doing this. I'm always like, great, absolutely, but it's far short from what I think is is um, necessary. So there's that. But I guess the angle that I might talk about right now is parents and why would they why would they get upset? Well, I think there's a number of factors. One is is that whenever you know you when you you parents out there, you understand that you're very protective of your children and when there are unknowns, you get scared. You know, if you sign up your kid for a dancing class or a soccer team, and you don't know who the coach is, and you don't trust the coach, you get scared, right? Well, when you change school curriculums from A to B, and parents are not, you know, parents are familiar with A, but they're not familiar with B, then they get scared and they they get reactive. And so, Trying to change the curriculum of a school, even if it's changing it for the better, is really challenging for parents. You know, they're they're much more they feel they they feel safer if you're just teaching the general courses, math and science. As soon as you start getting into emotional health or you know critical race theory, for example, evaluating the you know racism in the country or something, then parents, some parents, get really worried that you're going to brainwash the kid or you're going to turn them into this and that, or you're, you're going to teach them that their religion doesn't matter. You know, it, all because if you just teach math, then there's no risk of any of that stuff. Right. But as soon as you start getting into free thinking <laughs> and evaluating attachment or your society or something, then, then all sorts of fears start to enter the parents' minds. And, Uh, Then you get pushback. And, you know, I don't know what to do about that. I think that maybe the school districts should spend more time educating the parents as well, right? Like you pull all the parents in and say, here's what we're going to teach. Let me show you what we're going to do. And, you know, you just kind of walk them through it, get get them familiar with it. So they're like, oh, this isn't so bad. Like, yeah, this would be great for my kid, that kind of thing. Um, and should just our districts not doing enough? Yeah. Our districts not. Do they not have enough funds to do that? Yeah, <laughs> they don't. That would be volunteering your time to teach the parents and get them to get on board with it. Do we have political movements in our country that are interfering with um, educational efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have politicians and pundits, you know, on various different news channels that are brainwashing and infecting the populace to Uh, you know, get up in arms about some of the dumbest things in our society, you know, critical race theory being one of them, meaning that um, if you understand critical race theory for, you know, what it really is, it's, it's not threatening and it doesn't mean that white people are bad, but you know, pundits, news people and charismatic um, people trying to get power will convince, you know, the idiot masses that that's what it is. Now, it's not just—I dis- won't go down that rabbit hole. But point is, is that trying to change the public education system is is really hard. Uh, but think of the things we could do. Think of what we could do if uh, we actually did have one hour every day on everything psychological related, age appropriate, safe. Even if it was just emotional regulation. What emotion are you feeling? How do you, what what do you want to do with that emotion? What's, you know, why did you have that emotion? Do you detect other people's emotions? What can you do when you feel angry? You know, just all, just imagine, you know, I can't imagine any parent being against that. I hope not anyway. So um, there's that. But yeah, it, it absolutely goes against the patriarchy and the capitalist system, That our education system was absolutely based on, and to some extent you could say was developed for, was to create workers, was to create labor, was to create obedient people who sit in their chair, do what they're told, you know, fill out the forms and go home because that's how we make profit. And look at our country. The rich are getting richer and richer and richer, and the education system is generally staying the same. Is that a coincidence? No. Now, before I get at emails from some of you educators, I know that some of you literally teach classes on critical thinking, on how to how to strike back at Amazon or Jeff Bezos, or you know, I know some of you educators are out there doing good work. But on the whole, yeah, are we doing enough? I, I don't think so. All right, going on with Patron Ines's email. The second topic, which I would love to get your insight on, is partner abandonment when one partner in a marriage becomes very ill. I recently read some statistics on this topic, which really saddened me and frankly made me angry too. For example, women are six times more likely to be left by their husband when they're diagnosed with cancer compared to when the man is diagnosed with cancer. During the course of the study, 21% of women who were were divorced, 20, 21% of women were divorced by their partner after the diagnosis of cancer compared to only 3% of men. It seems that partner abandonment is a big and common problem for women going through extremely difficult medical situations, to the point where some oncology clinics have set up support groups for this scenario. I found this out anecdotally. The authors of the research suggest that this might be explained by women being more willing and prepared to take on the role of caretaker, especially early on in a marriage, whereas men are more reticent to accept such responsibility. I'd really enjoy your thoughts on this and hear more about the psychology of partner abandonment. Yeah, <clears throat> um, well, I mean, you pretty much summarized it there. And, yeah, it is pretty egregious and shocking. And we wouldn't say that men are horrible people, but um, this doesn't help the situation that, um, you know, women are six times more likely to be abandoned by their husband than husbands are to be abandoned by their wives when they're diagnosed with cancer. You know, I mean, it's, obviously, it's a pretty stark uh, data point regarding socialization. I, I don't think men are born this way. But, yeah, men are, uh, generally speaking, not socialized or even taught how to take care of other people, whereas women, to some extent, to, for some girls, are literally taught that from day one. As soon as they start playing, they're encouraged or rewarded for taking care of dolls or their younger siblings or something <clears throat> So there's that. And what I'll say as, as a man myself is that, um, and who was socialized this way, it is, and I've noticed this with my wife, that we have this difference, that it is harder for me to take care of other people. She's much better at taking care of people than I am in terms of uh, really taking care of them, you know, like really committing. Like when our dog is sick, my wife just, you know, dives fully into it you know she gets all the meds and she coordinates with the vet and she gets all the things and she thinks about it a lot she worries a lot she monitors a lot she you know she's a when we go on walks uh with the dogs like she's she's really paying attention to the things that they're sniffing at in case they like eat something weird and if they do eat something, you know she flips out and tries to get the thing out of their mouth, and and I'm just kind of like, huh, and and you know, I think there's pros and cons to each of our approaches. I think there's more pros to her approach, obviously, but but um, but yeah, I've noticed that that I just I just don't I I've been trying to work on it, and and it's an adjustment. I have to kind of force myself. Okay, you know, don't be. One, a typical dude in this way, but also, like, it's logical to be more concerned. It's logical to have a hawk or a, I don't know, be a little hypervigilant about the people or the animals that you're responsible for because really bad things can happen to them if you're not paying attention. And so, um, you know, as a man, I can tell you that I, I absolutely have been socialized that way. And and it's it doesn't make me a bad person, right? It doesn't mean that I don't have empathy. So, um, I'd like to think that if my wife had cancer, I wouldn't abandon her, you know what I mean? So there's that. I think there's also, uh, on the flip side that men are given license to leave in a situation like that where women are not like, uh, another way to look at this statistic is that, uh, you know, it said 21% of women were divorced when, when they were diagnosed with cancer, whereas only 3% of men were left, um, one of the ways you can look at that is that women will stay in relationships longer than than they should because they don't feel entitled to leave maybe as much as men do. And so if we were to socialize boys and girls more equally and more healthily, we might actually see less men leave but more women leave. Because just because someone gets divorced after the diagnosis of cancer doesn't mean that the person leaving – the you know relationship is a bad person. You could be in a terrible relationship, and then uh, have a diet. You know, you, so you could let's say you're married and your relationship is not going well, and but you know you don't really get in each other's way. You, you just you you coexist. You go through the motions, and then one day your partner gets cancer, and suddenly you now have to take care of them twenty four seven, but your relationship was already strained and your relationship wasn't good to begin with. And so the cancer diagnosis could really bring into sharp focus the fact that the marriage is, is terrible and that you should have left a long time ago. So there's those kinds of scenarios as well. Um, now it sounds to me Ines, that you were diagnosed with cancer and you were abandoned. I don't know if that happened, but if that did happen, that's awful. And yeah, yuck. And I can absolutely see some men who just freak out because they're like, oh, crap, I have to now take care of someone, and I don't want to, and I don't I don't know how to, and I would just rather not. And so, you know, see ya. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, are some people prone to doing that? Yeah, sure. So that's pretty awful. All right, this next email is from Anonymous. Patron, they write... Could we have a counterpart for the apology episode on complaints? How to complain, where and when to complain, and whether to ever complain. End of email. Yeah, well, maybe one day I'll do a, a deeper dive on it. But <clears throat> in the for the sake of this, you know, me powering through all the emails, what I'll say is that, and we've talked about this before to some extent, because complaining, another word for complaining is just, talking about things that you wish were different in your relationship right and what i'll say is that every couple has a different style there's pros and cons and there's a spectrum so on one end of the spectrum in the healthy zone you know i'm going to talk about the health there's obviously an unhealthy version of all this but within the healthy range you have on one end of the spectrum where couples talk about everything whenever there's a complaint that runs through their head they talk about it and The pros to that is that there's a lot of communication. There's a lot of opportunity to change, to meet your partner's needs. There's a lot of clarification. There's there's a lot of involvement. There's a lot of trust of, well, you know, if if there's something that's going to be said, they're going to say it. There's a lot of um, intimacy in this way, potential for that. The con is that you might be fighting frequently because there are you know potentially a lot of complaints that come up for people on a daily basis, and so on this end of the spectrum, you might be complaining and mildly having tense fights and maybe even big fights almost every day <clears throat> so <clears throat> sorry there are there's research that shows that this actually can work. you just have to have a lot of positivity this is the five to one ratio that Gottman found so if you know, every day you're having like 10 negative interactions because you're complaining frequently to each other. You've got to have 50 good, you know, really solid positive interactions every day. It's a lot of positive interactions to counteract the negative ones that are happening. But some couples do achieve that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have couples that literally never complain ever. And these people can be considered pathological and unhealthy, but. And they can certainly be that way. But some couples make it work where <clears throat> they just live and let live. There's, there's love and there's connection, but they, you know, they notice things, but they just let it roll off their back. They they just have a policy of like, well, maybe I'll subtly communicate that. I don't like that, but you know, it probably won't change. What's the point in that? And I'm sure there are things that they don't like about me that they have to deal with. So live and let live. And so the, The pro to this is that you never fight about anything because you never complain. The con is that you could build up a lot of resentment and there might be some missed opportunities there, right? So you know how to com so whether to ever complain, I think I answered that question, where and when and how is you know things that we always talk about, how to be assertive and how to how to talk to someone so that they can hear you and receive you. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of caveats, things like, hey, I want to talk about something with you, but I just want to make sure you understand this is not a big deal to me. This isn't a deal breaker. It's not, you know, if you never change this thing, you know, I'm about to, I'm going to ask you to change something about your behavior, but just know that if you never change, I'm not going to leave you. Um, on a scale of annoyance to me, this is like a 2 out of 10, so don't worry. This isn't a big deal. But, um, when you do X, Y, and Z, it I don't like it, um, and I it makes me h- angry or hurts my feelings or something, and I I would like you to do something different. So that's how you do it. You know that's how you complain, and then to be complained to, you have to uh, receive it. You have to slow down, don't get defensive, um, and obviously when you're complaining, try not to be critical of their personality. Don't they don't say things like, "Well, if you were." you know less of a fuck up than you would da, da, da. or you always do this thing where you, you know, those are blanket accusations of their personality you want to and this is true of parenting too right you don't want to say to a kid you're a liar you want to say when you lie that hurts mommy's feelings you know or when you lie it's hard for daddy to trust you you don't want to say to your kid you're a piece of crap because you lie all the time you know the that's the def you you want to avoid that in your relationships your romantic relationship as well. You want to say when you do X, y and z, it hurts my feelings. You don't want to say you always or you never or um, <clears throat> if you were a different sort of person, you wouldn't do X, y and z. you know just avoid those it might even be true. you know your your conceptualization of the personality might actually be accurate, but it doesn't help you know because when the person when people's personhoods are attacked, They get defensive, right? Whereas if you just say something you did bothered me, you know, they're a lot less defensive. All right, the next email is from patron Anthony from Jersey. He writes, are there profound attachment differences present in East Coast versus West Coast people? Uh, Just chiming in here. Um, I haven't seen research on that. There might be some research on that. There might be a a slight trend there, but I'm guessing that there isn't. Uh, But there might not be research on that. Um, Are there parenting differences between East coast and really, you know, what are we talking about when we say East and West coast, like East coast, like from Maine all the way to Florida, or are we just talking about New York and Philadelphia and Washington DC and Boston so, and we also understand that even if you just take New York city, we're talking about dozens of different cultures with a wide variety of parenting assumptions, right? So when we, say East Coast versus West Coast, like, what are we really saying? And, if, you know, of course, West Coast. Uh, you have LA and San Francisco and and, and you also have rural areas West Co- you know, on the West Coast. So I'm guessing that when you smear out all the people on the East Coast and West Coast, you're not going to find that much difference in, in attachment style and attachment trends, you know, that kind of thing. Are there parenting trends? Yeah, maybe. West Coast people are at least stereotypically were more passive or more, doting on our children but you know i don't know if that's true um so the short answer is i don't know anthony <laughs> but the longer answer is i i suspect not um does differentiation in attachment styles uh differ based on birth order uh just chiming in here uh, no uh attachment styles so birth order there's a lot of pseudoscience and misinformation about birth order especially on the internet And you can get it. I've even I've gotten into big arguments with people. But there was a time when I specialized in the research on birth order, and I gave lectures specifically on birth order to organizations. It was like this weird specialty I had. And I read, and this is before uh, databases were on the internet. This is when you actually went to the to the libraries and would pull the journals and and photocopy the journals and read them. And I read hundreds upon hundreds of of research articles on birth order and personality and there there's so much i can say but the the general consensus and the general findings is that there's no difference there's nothing that you can predict about personality based on birth order aside from i mean some studies will find a small signal but then there are equally amount of studies that negate or find something completely different. But there is one finding that seems to be kind of true, is that the firstborn children or only born children, uh, first or only, are more conservative than later born children. And the theory goes is that the first child that enters into the family will orient themselves towards their parents, meaning they orient towards authority and towards... Um, convention. And be, because it it makes the parents feel better when their child orients that way, the next child that enters and, and all the subsequent children, you know, if there's more than one that, that is addition to the family, they enter the uh, family and the older child has already established a niche. It's almost, it's like they've established a little area in the home personality wise and it's hard to displace that person. So the, the later born children have to find another spot. And so they will not be as conservative and not as oriented towards authority as the firstborn. Having said that, plenty of firstborn people are very non-conservative. And I'm not mean conservative in the political sense, although it can mean that. What I'm saying is like, you know, oriented towards Whatever your parents were oriented towards, and that later-born children tend to be more um, unconventional, more rebellious, more out of the box thinking. Then there's some um, anecdotal evidence of it, like when you look at inventors and these, they, they tend to be later-born people. So that's the only thing we can really say about birth order, and attachment styles I definitely um, don't have anything to do with that. The other thing to consider, and I, I give lectures on this that birth order is such a weird thing to focus on because there's so many other factors that we understand contribute to personality, right? Uh, For example, um, even if we just look at birth order alone, if you have three children that were born a year apart, one, two, three, that's a lot different than if you have three children that are born seven or 10 years apart, one, two, three. So we understand that the you know like for me for example i was i was third but my older brother and sister are very close in age and i was a distant third so and then i had a very distant fourth you know i have a very distant younger brother so am i a middle child or was i the baby when my older brother and sister moved out i was the oldest child at home and i was responsible for my younger brother so i'm the third of four but It changed over time in terms of what my role was in the family. And so, you know, birth order doesn't have to, there's nothing, science has demonstrated we cannot predict someone's personality based on birth order. That's clear. The last question you ask is, does gender affect attachment style? And uh, generally speaking, I would say no, but women, girls are socialized to be more, relationally oriented which makes them a little bit more likely to be preoccupied and boys are socialized to be more independent and to consider emotions weak and so it'd be more narcissistic and so there's more tendency for boys to become more avoidant but i want to be very clear that plenty of men adult men are preoccupied and plenty of women are avoidant and because when i whenever i lecture or i teach about Gen, you know, gender tendencies and attachment style, I find that people simplistically kind of lock in that women are preoccupied and, and men are avoidant. And then I'll, I'll be working with students and that there will be a case study or something or a client. And the man will obviously be preoccupied, but all my students will see him as avoidant. And I'm like, all the signs are there he's definitely preoccupied look at the signs but it's like they can't see it they know something's wrong but because they lock in that men are avoidant and women are preoccupied they can't see it in the same way that men are narcissistic and women are are borderline it's like no so many borderline people are men so many narcissistic people are women and we need to get away from genderizing these issues because of course that doesn't make any sense But can gender socialization affect tendencies with attachment style? Absolutely. All right. This next question is from patron Brad from L.A. He writes, how would you talk to someone you know, a close friend or relative that is coming to you for advice or therapy, much like a client would? Does the ACA code of ethics not apply to this since you won't be charging for services or using their insurance? Would you just give surface level advice and then refer them to another therapist for ongoing services? Can you get in trouble for giving mental health advice as a licensed therapist to someone, you know, personally, even though you don't charge them Uh, just chiming in here. So you're focusing Brad on something that I wouldn't focus on, which is charging or using insurance because you uh, just, because you don't charge or use insurance doesn't mean they're not a client. The, The key is, is, Is the person a client or not? That's the distinction. Um, Does the, does, you know, if if a friend comes to me and says, I have a problem and I'd like to talk with you and we talk about it uh, and I give them advice, does my friend think that they're a client? Do I think that they're a client? Have I made it clear that they're not a client? So because someone could come to me and I could work with them pro bono and Maybe they're an acquaintance that I know at work and they absolutely could be a client. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So the key is, is, is the person a client or not? And um, if they're not a client and they're a friend of mine or a relative and they were to come to me, um, you're saying, you know, what do you do? Well, the the safe answer is. To refer them to a therapist, right and, and you know it's a pretty good idea if they're suffering from something pretty significant. having said that i I'm compassionate about my friends and family, and will absolutely talk with them in a way that I would if they were a client. I, I don't treat them like a client because they're not a client, for example, they know me, they know my personal life. my clients don't generally know the details of my personal life. So my friends and family, um, you know, the relationship isn't, isn't, isn't really anything like that of a client, but yeah, I mean, there there and, and there's different approaches to this, but when friends and family come to me with things that I can help with them with, I, I help them. And, it, and from the outside, it might kind of look like a therapy session. Uh, it's definitely not. You know, I, I've had couples, friends of mine who are going through marital issues and they know I'm a marital therapist. So they come to me and, you know, we talk and I give them similar kinds of advice or similar kinds of conceptualizations as I would my clients, because why would I hold that back? You know, it'd be like if you went to your friend, you know, who's an oncologist and you're like, you know, is this skin cancer, why would you not as a friend say, well, let me take a look why wouldn't why wouldn't you take a look? Why'd you buy? I can't take a look' cause you're not my patient. It's like, come on, you know, just take a look at it. Does it look like skin cancer to you or not? You're like it's not a big deal so it's the same with me you know when people come to me and say like you know I have anxiety or I have depression or my marriage is falling apart or um, I'm suffering from you know infidelity recovery what what do I do? I, you know I give them the same spiel as I would my clients, but I don't treat them right I don't like engage in an ongoing Um, thing with them now I might provide uh, corrective experiences for them Um, corrective experiences is the bread and butter of my therapy with my clients but I absolutely um, will engineer experiences with friends family students supervisees um, even listeners so that it could be a corrective experience for them and it's the same thing I would do in therapy but it's not therapy, you know, the The line between therapist, for me, between therapist and human is extremely blurry at this point in, in my life. So, um, and there's nothing in the code of ethics that prevents that. And there's nothing in the laws that prevent that. Um, it's totally fine. If you, as a, th- you don't have to, Brad, you know, it, and many therapists will draw this boundary of just like, look, when I go home, I don't want to be the therapist. I don't, I don't want to be that person. And that's okay. Or... Uh, this I don't want to get triangulated into this, or uh, this sounds pretty hairy. I think they should talk to a therapist. Absolutely, if that's how you want to operate. But there's nothing unethical about um, going deep into some psychological issues. You know, when you hear me and Bob talk, uh, that's pretty similar to a therapy session. You know, that's, that's pretty s- similar to if I had a client who was like Bob. Those conversations between me and Bob, you know, the deep ones, are are very emulative of what it would be like to, um, you know, have a therapy session, but it's not therapy. Bob understands he's not my client. I understand he's not my client. He's my friend. And when I have problems, he supports me. But this idea that, you know, you can't, you can't do therapy on your friends and family. It's like, it's this really simplistic understanding of what therapy is as if it's some sort of like manipulative, like, Um, technique or something, you know, good therapy is good listening and good friendships is good listening. Good therapy is providing corrective experiences. Good friendships is involving corrective experiences. So, you know, it, it's, it's fine. Patron Brad from LA has another question. Can you have a secure attachment as a baby with the primary caregiver and then still develop borderline personality disorder after, a divorce at six years old then live with a father who is a little cold and dismissive and doesn't understand your needs. End of email. Um, yes and no. So personality disorders tend to develop within the first six years of life, first five years of life. That isn't to say that you can't develop it later on or you can't have the susceptibility to it pre-six and then experience some pretty dramatic abandonment or betrayals post 6 years old and develop personate, borderline personality disorder if if that were true if you know if it was really true that you had someone who had a secure attachment and then only experienced some you know minor difficulty you know cuz to go through a divorce and to have a cold and dismissive father you know that's not good but it's it's not the kind of terrible experiences that a lot of people experience when they're growing up can you develop a mild to moderate form of borderline because of that? Yeah, you know, that could happen. But you probably wouldn't develop a severe form of it. You know, that, that's that got to come from zero to five mistreatment and, and betrayal and abandonment. Having said that, and there's no way for me to know this, but if, if, if someone came to me and said, my life was fantastic until I was six, and I had a very secure attachment with my mother, and then I went through my parents went through a divorce, and I went to live with my dad and he was and it was a very chaotic time for me and I think that 's where my that 's where my borderline personality disorder um, formed. I would be suspicious i wouldn 't say anything because there wouldn 't be any point in that, but I would suspect that the person was framing it that way, but in all likelihood they had more difficulties pre six that they just aren 't aware of because you know most of us don 't remember back then. And, you know, it's not uncommon for people to have a really positive view of their zero to five when it's not like, you know, I've I've heard people say, you know, they'll, they'll tell me a story. They'll be like, yeah, you know, when I was, you know, zero to five, my life was perfect. You know, everything was perfect and then everything fell apart when I was in kindergarten or first grade. You know, my parents started fighting all the time and. And my dad got addicted to meth and this, and everything fell apart. And I'm like, okay, that's possible. But it's probably more likely that you just don't remember or you didn't notice consciously all the pathology that was happening in your family when you, until you know, pre five years old, because, you know, kids that are three, four years old, it, they don't really register it consciously what's happened. They sometimes do, but they often don't. And so usually when I hear a story like that, I'm like, oh, it's probably a pretty good possibility that some terrible things had always been happening, but you just didn't really register them until you were five or six, or you don't remember them until you're five or six or relatively your life was better when you were three years old, but your life wasn't optimal when you were three, you know, but of course, you know, there's no way for me to confirm that, you know, because we'd have to go back in a time machine and we'd have to be inside their head and there's no way to do that. So Um, But I'll tell you from personal experience, everyone that I've treated with any personality disorder, um, I found enough evidence to confirm my belief, which is that pre five is the time when certain things have to happen. Now, you could have, say, not a terrible early childhood, but not great. And then have really terrible things happen when you're six or seven or even 25 that kind of trigger things that developed sort of when you were three. Does that make sense? Anyway. All right. Well, I f- feel like I did pretty good. I think I got almost halfway done with this, uh, with the patron email list here. So join me next time when I continue to try to answer every single email before the end of the year. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.